Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. It's August 18th, 2016. The unintentional theme of our show today is DIY with David Lowry's ultra-indie approach, documentary filmmakers supporting the right to record citizen journalism movement, an intro to the booming Nigerian indie film scene, and three awesome DIY gear hacks. And as always, we'll bring news you can use about upcoming deadlines and opportunities, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show. As always, we're coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. And I'm here with the most No Film School co-hosts we've ever had on the show. Joining me today is John Fusco, Emily Booter, and Charles Hain. Hi, everybody. Hey. Hello. Hello. I think it's going to take all of us to make up for the fact that uh, No Film School's founder, Ryan Koo, is still off filming his feature film, Amateur, for Netflix. So I'm excited to jump in. How's everyone? <laughs> <laughs> is, is that how you jump in? <laughs> is that how you jump into well, the news? Well, if you really want to know, I'll, I'll get into it. <laughs> I mean, I'm excited it, to jump into everyone's personal lives. I just find it funny that it's like the first not swampy day in Brooklyn, and yet we're here in a swampy podcast booth when it's not 112 degrees outside. So we're like managing to still find the heat. Yeah, that's the big uh, no film school news is it's hot as balls in here. All you listeners should know how dedicated we are to you because we've piled even more people into the booth to make it even hotter in the hottest place in our building. So... That being said, the Locarno Film Festival in Switzerland wrapped up earlier this week, and uh, B-movie king Roger Corman was their filmmaker's Academy Guest of Honor. We actually have a great post detailing his address to the audience there, and it's just got so many impressive facts about his career. Like, I knew of him. I mean, we've all heard of him, but I really didn't know like that he's made over 400 movies and gave Francis Ford Coppola and James Cameron their first breaks in the industry. So check out the post for facts like those and some great advice for filmmakers of any genre. He also has an amazing cameo in Godfather Part Two as one of the guys on the Senate panel because Francis Ford Coppola was like, I need a bunch of like old looking white dudes. And so he got Roger Corman to be like one of the old white dudes. I love that. I feel like instead of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, we could definitely play Six Degrees of Roger Corman. Oh, oh yeah. It'd be a much more impressive list, I think. I'm probably related to him because I'm Jewish and he's Jewish. Oh. We've had some other impressive posts on the site this last week, like one Emily did. So last week we mentioned David Lowry's greatest contribution to modern filmmaking ever, which was his epic 12-year production diary. For the release of Pete's Dragon, which came out last Friday, this was Lowry's first foray into Hollywood, and I decided to delve deep into his recollections of the 70-day shoot. It's beleaguered with usual challenges that anyone will encounter on a film set, like inclement weather, not enough time, and scenes that just aren't working for some intangible reason. But there are tons of incredible nuggets for filmmakers to learn from at any stage of the game. Some of the best moments are Lowry's small triumphs, such as when he describes a feeling of satisfaction after shooting a bunch of images exactly as he envisioned them in the pitch process to Disney. But the main takeaway from the diary is Lowry's discovery of the immutability of the filmmaking process. What he means by that is he learned from shooting Pete's Dragon that shooting a blockbuster isn't that much different from shooting an indie film. He actually compares the process to shooting his $12,000 debut indie feature called St. Nick, which he shot seven years prior. I want to read an excerpt from Day 28, which marked the total number of production days on Lowry's previous film, Anthem Body Saints, but it was only a third of the way through the production of Pete's Dragon. 
For the purposes of this podcast, <laughs> John Fusco is going to read as David Lowry from the entry of day 28. Hi, I'm John Fusco, and this is David Lowry. In the months leading up to this gig, the sheer duration of the production grew increasingly daunting. I've never focused on just one thing for anywhere near this long, mentally or physically, and I wasn't sure how I'd handle it or how I could pace myself. Although, on the plus side, I was looking forward to having enough time to shoot things properly for once. Now, on day 28, I feel fairly certain of two things. One can adapt to anything, and no movie ever has enough time to shoot things properly. Filmmaking, I now suspect, is infinitely scalable. How else to explain that we are scraping by each day by the skin of our teeth, rushing like mad to complete scenes that demand at least twice the time as we have for them? In the moment, our schedule feels ridiculous and unfair and sometimes comical and often just wrong, but we buckle down and somehow we finish the work. And although I have no idea how we'd do it, I know that if we only had a few weeks to shoot the same script, we'd be finishing it too. Just as if we had 150 days, we'd still be running out of time. That was so distinguished of you. Thank you. Wow, what a gift Lowry has given us. Um, oh, I thought you were going to say what a gift I have. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That too. Speaking of gifts, we'd like to wish a very happy 50th birthday to Cartemquin Films. Before Michael Moore came along, the highest grossing documentary of all time was Hoop Dreams in 1994. And by that time, the team behind Hoop Dreams had already been making docs for almost 30 years. It's hard to believe it, but the Chicago-based Cartemquin Films is now turning 50 this year. Their first production was Home for Life in 1966, about the experiences of two elderly people in their first month at a home for the aged. And there have been a bunch of celebratory events and screenings already this year. The company's actually streaming one of their films free every week for the entire year at cartemquin.com. That's K-A-R-T-E-M-Q-U-I-N.com. And if you're in New York, like us, the Museum of Moving Image in Queens is doing a retrospective series of screenings and live events all week starting tomorrow with Steve James, the director of Hoop Dreams and others. I also think it's amazing that it's a 50 year business in that like the 60s had all of these collectives like there was Cinema Manifest in San Francisco and there were a lot of things like this and they survived. And like that in and of itself is like a really major, beautiful achievement considering how much great work they continue to put out to this day. So what about you guys? Does anyone have a favorite Cartemquin film? I really like the movie. I really like the movie. <laughs> Share uh, time. <laughs> I, I do. I like the, I, I saw Life Itself, um, I think around, I think last fall because it was on Netflix and I had also just watched Montage of Heck like the day before mm. so I just got really depressed for two days basically because it's, it just does such a great job of chronicling uh, the life and career of Roger Ebert and it's so tragic um, to see what happened to him and you literally get to see him you know dying which is really hard to watch but at the same time it's just it's it's so um poignant in building his legacy what he did what he did for critics everywhere is unreal he i mean he revolutionized the critics industry which is i guess something emily could talk about more yeah he made something that was previously really academic and esoteric more human and relatable by just speaking to the general populace and and relating things back to his own life and his own memories and his own experiences and just kind of turning the experience of watching a film into a 
a collaborative effort to understand the world a little bit better and people. Yeah, I mean, he took serious academic theory and broke it down for seven-year-olds. I mean, I remember watching that with my family when I was like six or seven every Sunday watching Ebert Goes to the Movie. I love that Cartemquin in particular made that film. They're Chicago-based. He was Chicago-based. And as you guys are saying, Roger Ebert had such a major influence on our whole industry. And who knows, you know, little John being down there six years old, listening to Roger Ebert, like that could have planted a seed for you as a filmmaker. And on the flip side, Cartemquin, I think, is a lesser known name, but also very, very influential, kind of under the radar in the industry. And I also happen to provide a great link to our next story, because the Cartemquin team are some of the many notable filmmakers to have signed an official statement and petition released by the International Documentary Association in support of the hashtag right to record movement. So background on this can be easily read in just the first line of the IDA's statement, which says, we, the documentary community, call upon the Department of Justice to investigate a troubling pattern of abuse of power, the pervasive harassment of citizens who use cameras and social media to document and distribute footage of law enforcement. So this is coming in response to a wave of arrests of regular citizens in the U.S. who've recorded police violence against people of color in recent months, although it's their legal right to do so. The pervasive feeling among people in my community is that the violence itself isn't new, but the cameras are, and that that documentation is part of what's bringing all of this to a head in our country. The whole issue hits really close to home for me. I actually started out, as some of you guys know, as an independent video activist documenting police activity at the anti-war protests in San Francisco at the start of the current Iraq war. And then in 2008, when I was responsible for a group of reporters covering the Republican National Convention for MTV News, one of the young reporters I was responsible for got swept up in a mass arrest of protesters as he was filming them. He wasn't protesting. He was just documenting it. And he spent the night in jail. It was a long night for me, folks, let me tell you. His camera and equipment was confiscated. And honestly, if we hadn't had the power of MTV's legal team behind us, I don't know that he ever would have gotten that stuff back. This issue touches on a lot of our fundamental rights as Americans, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and freedom from police harassment. So if you care about these issues, and I'm assuming as media makers that many of you do, you can sign the petition, which I also did, at documentary.org slash right to record. One of the things that's really interesting for me about this is it's a really fascinating use case for live streaming. With tools like Facebook Live and Periscope, obviously you can live stream your breakfast if you feel like it, but... Like when you're in a situation where your camera could be damaged by someone who doesn't want you to record or someone who has the legal power to compensate your equipment if they feel like it, the ability to immediately stream what you are seeing and share it with the world. And even if no one's watching it, to get it up on servers so that it can be reviewed later is like one of the most exciting applications of new technology in documentary filmmaking for me. On last week's show, we mentioned some of our most anticipated films of the upcoming Toronto International Film Festival, and they've since announced uh, that this year's City to City program, which focuses on films and filmmakers from a different global city each year, will highlight films from Lagos, Nigeria. If you don't know, the Nigerian film industry, affectionately known as Nollywood, pumps out about 2,000 films per year, making it the second largest film industry in the world in terms of the number of annual film productions. Do you guys know what's first? China. You are right. China? Nope, you are right. India? It's India. Who's right? (laughs) Oh, yeah, Bollywood. Yep, Bollywood, Nollywood. And then Hollywood. Hollywood. Yeah, I wouldn't have... Is Hollywood even in the top five? 
We're number three okay. mm-hmm, in terms of volume. What about China? Charliewood. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. we talked about that on a past show, too. I don't know if as many films are being made in China because there's still so much censorship there. Although films are being consumed in China at a more rapid rate than I think almost anywhere in the world. So yeah, I first learned about Nollywood from Franco Sacchi's fascinating 2007 documentary, This is Nollywood, which you can actually stream on Fandor now. I saw it in the Film Arts Festival and remember thinking that our idea in the States of micro-budget filmmaking and DIY was so relative, like several productions that were followed in this documentary had to stop production regularly because the entire town would lose electricity, but they were constantly making films nonetheless. So if you're interested in learning more, I definitely recommend checking out that film or a book from a couple years ago, The Nigerian Filmmaker's Guide to Success Beyond Nollywood, which is available on Amazon and is actually about the country's indie scene, even outside of the more mainstream films being made by Nollywood. A great film blog that I read regularly called Shadow and Act put up a post from Nigerian filmmaker Oluyomi Osasanya, who's had a film himself in the Can Short Film Corner. He writes about the scene from an insider's perspective, and he also does so regularly on his own blog. It's really interesting stuff. Kind of makes me want to do a scene report segment here on the show or on our site, like they used to do for local music scenes in Maximum Rock and Roll. Did anyone read that? I'm aging myself again. It was What's amazing. What's that? <laughs> it's a magazine on paper. I'll, I'll get into it later. I know you guys don't really understand what those things are. Anyway, point is, I think it's really interesting for us all to hear about what each other's doing, and it's, it's really easy for us to get in our little film bubbles in New York and L.A. So if you're outside of New York or L.A. or another big industry hub, but there's a film scene in your area, definitely get in touch. We'd love to hear what's going on. Moving on to gear news, here's Charles Hayne. Thank you, Liz. So as she mentioned earlier, today's week is sort of the informal DIY week in gear news. The first thing that came up was a band, Drive Like Maria, uh, used Prisma, which is a photo editing app for iPhone, to do a music video. The cool thing about this is... It was a way for a band to take advantage of like a really interesting thing happening in the zeitgeist. Prisma came out for iPhone and let you turn your still photos into painting-like images. So you probably saw a lot of that in your Instagram feed. But it wasn't quite powerful enough to use it for video. It takes about 20 seconds per frame, which is more than most people were willing to take. So the band captured the moment, jumped in there, split it up with the director transferred their music video to 10 frames a second and pushed it through Prisma by hand. And uh, I think it's that kind of like DIY ethos that makes things really interesting in the filmmaking community. Coincidentally, the same day they came out with their video, the Prisma for Video ripoff apps started hitting the App Store. But I'm glad they used the original Prisma and I'm glad they did it by hand. The second Gear News of the Week that came out is a another designer who has built a three-axis motion controller out of Legos. This is awesome for so many reasons. Stop motion photography gets way better with motion, right? We've all seen time lapses where you just mount your camera on something and you watch clouds go by. And it's not that interesting, but if the camera is moving, panning, tilting, or especially dollying in the middle of a time lapse, you get these really dynamic, interesting shots. And there are definitely tools out there you can buy if you want to spend a few hundred or a few thousand dollars. But if you want to build something, for way less money, it's sometimes a little intimidating to think about like, ah, motion encoders and stuff like that. And I love that this guy went out, figured out how you could do it with Legos, shared his plans with the world. And there's this weird block a lot of people have about building things themselves. And I feel like once you've built two or three things yourself, all of a sudden you feel like you can build everything. And uh, if this is the first thing that gets someone into DIY, uh, 
I think that's really amazing. Yeah, I should mention that Ali, the guy who created this thing, actually reached out to us and uh, let us know he had done it. So thanks for reaching out and for reading us all the way from Cairo, Egypt. And just so you guys know, if you're interested in starting to tinker with this stuff, there's links to the full plans and a video of how it works on No Film School. Whose world is this? The world is yours. The world is yours. Is that, is that Nas? <laughs> yeah, that's Nas. <laughs> oh, man. Can you just uh, append like a hip hop break to every yeah. story? That would be really great. Uh, and the last thing this week is another DIY thing. Midi Grade brings DIY control to DaVinci Resolve. So a filmmaker out of Finland was very frustrated with how expensive the control bars are for color. I understand. They are way more expensive than I think they need to be. So he had the brilliant plan of taking a DJ... MIDI controller and custom mapping it for Resolve. He's released a bunch of videos explaining how he's done it and how the controls are mapped. You buy a $200 MIDI controller, you pay $50 for a software mapping, and you get really powerful control for DaVinci Resolve for a very convenient price. I really love this kind of stuff. You guys should all check it out. MIDI grade. Thanks, Charles. So what do we have for upcoming grant opportunity deadlines? Well, the first opportunity is a fellowship. It's the Karen Schmier Editing Fellowship, and you can apply to it by September 30th. It's named after longtime Errol Morris collaborator Karen Schmier, who was struck and killed by a car in 2010, three weeks before her 40th birthday. To be considered an emerging editor for the purposes of the grant, you must have edited at least one feature-length documentary that's longer than 60 minutes, but no more than three feature-length films, fiction or documentary. It's got a pretty ridiculous prize package that goes along with it. In addition to a year-long mentorship with a seasoned editor, you also get a $1,000 cash prize, but the fellowship's package includes passes to basically every cool American film and editing event in 2017, 11 in all. Some highlights from those festivals are South by Southwest, Sundance, and Brooklyn's own Rooftop Films, who also provide the winner with a $1,000 equipment rental credit. The fellowship will even pay for transportation and accommodation to two of these events. If that weren't enough, it also includes a one-year membership to the International Documentary Association, or IDA, and a special membership in American Cinema Editors. Best of all, it's free to apply. This is an awesome and very prestigious fellowship, so definitely let us know if you uh, if you apply and you get it. They have a pretty good track record for choosing female editors, which I find great. I think the past two years they chose female editors. Our next opportunity is New Filmmakers Los Angeles' On Location, the Los Angeles Video Project. I'd call it a competition, I guess, and you can apply to that by August 26th, and it's super easy. All you have to do is upload your video. There's nothing else involved aside from making it. <laughs> so New Filmmakers Los Angeles is challenging filmmakers to make a short that positively portrays the LA scene with a documentary, narrative, commercial, or music video. Your piece can fall into one of two categories, two to five minutes or under two minutes, and the grand prize package includes a $40,000 production prize package from Alternative Camera Rentals, $500 in cash from New Filmmakers LA, and a lot of other cool stuff that'll help you make your next movie. As for festival deadlines, the American Indian Film Festival is coming up with a deadline of August 19th. It takes place in November in San Francisco. It's the world's longest running exposition showcasing independent films of U.S. American Indians and First Nations peoples of Canada. It's now in its 41st year. It accepts films that are made by and about 
American Indian, and First Nation peoples of Canada. And it was highlighted by Indian Country Today and voted as one of the best Native American experiences by USA Today. The Nighthawk Shorts Festival has a deadline of August 22nd to apply by. Uh, if you don't know Nighthawk... It's one of the best places in Brooklyn yeah, by far. It's one of the best places to see movies in New York City in general. Um, so I imagine that most of our New York City listeners know that already. But The first time I went there, by the way, I like wanted to move in. I was like, how can this be in my living room? Yeah, it's great. It's a bar, restaurant, theater. And every time I've gone or tried to go, it's sold out. So I've actually never been there. But Are you I serious? I really want to go. Yeah, well, because I go, I, I don't know. Every time I've gone, it's just kind of been a spur-of-the-moment decision. You actually have to, like, plan ahead to go see Yeah, you got to buy it online. Yeah. Anyways, this is their fourth annual Nighthawk Shorts Festival, and it's six days of short films under 20 minutes. It's got some great prizes, especially for people living in the city. The festival jury winner wins post-production sound services from Herd City, valued at $16,000, and post-production coloring services from Nice Shoes, which are valued at $20,000. Those are some pretty nice shoes. They're pretty good. Uh, the jury runner-ups get a gift certificate from B&H for $1,500 and a pro account from Vimeo. And the Cinematography Award winner gets an equipment donation from Panavision that has a $7,500 value. And because the world only exists in the two places where I've lived, San Francisco and New York, the San Francisco Independent Film Festival has a deadline of August 26th. 18- which, by the way, you might know better as Indie Fest, which is what everybody in San Francisco calls it. Or SFIF. 18 years in the running, it takes place in San Francisco from February 9th to 23rd, and it has a lot of cash prizes, so check it out. And now it's time for Ask No Film School. Tavis Northam this week asks about jobs versus internships and when to move on. Specifically, he says that he has had two video production internships under his belt, both of them unsurprisingly unpaid, since 2014. He also simultaneously has had a video production job at his university for almost two years. But as he's about to graduate and is not at school strictly for film, his big question is, is he ready to be applying for an actual film production job as, say, a junior producer or content producer? Or should he still be going after internships? Thanks for the question, Tavis. Um, I couldn't tell from your profile where you're located, although I feel like your name, Tavis Northam, means England. I'm just guessing. Anyway, um, and I also don't know what exactly you want to do, but I think either way, yes, try to get paid. I mean, always go for getting paid first. Um, Without sort of lying or overstating your abilities, you can put yourself out there. You know, the worst that could happen is that they say no or they say, well, you might not be ready for a paid job yet, but we'll give you a foot in the door with a you know great internship. So you know, first step would be to make a reel to show that you've actually done the stuff you say you've done. And if you're moving to a big media market, you might have to intern or start as a low-paid PA. But if you've got the skills that you mentioned, you'll quickly move up from there. And also, if you're going the unpaid route, rather than an internship where you'd be stuck in one environment, you may want to volunteer on a bunch of different sets so you can network and learn new skills. I mean, the best possible way to move up in the industry is to be on a set and show your value. It kind of sounded like from your post that you have a specific job in mind, but if you're just looking generally for opportunities, there are a lot of production job websites out there that cover different cities. I know one I've used a lot to hire and to get work is Mandy.com. But if you're relocating from the city where you went to university, things might be more difficult. I mean, in my experience, I moved from L.A. to New York two years ago, and I was shocked to discover that, like, potential New York clients really wanted to talk 
to New York references. And like my L.A. clients, as impressive or not impressive as they might have been, were like basically irrelevant because it was a different market and people always want to talk to people they're familiar with. So you might discover that if you are relocating, say, from one city to another when you graduate, you might end up having to intern a little bit just to get to know people in the new market because film is definitely a small community where people tend to know each other and a lot of the paid positions come because they already know you or they know someone you've worked with. So definitely aim at paid positions. And if you've got to take internships in order to meet people in that market, that shouldn't be something that you uh, feel bad about. It happens to a, a lot of people when they graduate. Yeah, I mean, I'll say from my experience, um, and I think I'm sort of closer to like leaving college at your time um, where internships are pretty much necessary, honestly, to get a real job um, at first. Don't undervalue internships out of college. Um, I worked for two years um, just like at cafes and stuff before I decided to go the route of trying to find a full-time job. And how I got that full-time job was actually an internship. And the person that gave me that internship is now sitting right next to me. And that's how I got my first job, my first real job. And then later on, after that person was let off from her previous job, I hired her at this job. So internships are definitely valuable. Don't undervalue them because you make some great connections. And that person's Emily Booter, by the way, she's sitting right next to me. So, And no film school. So lucky to have you both. <laughs> Good luck, Tavis. Keep us posted. And here's the movies that you can check out this week that are coming to streaming services and theaters. The first one I would advise you all to check out if you haven't seen yet is coming to Amazon Prime on August 22nd. It is Blue Ruin, which I've actually talked about, I think, quite a few times on this show already. I think it's really just a perfect revenge movie. Um, And I saw a panel with him a few months ago, and I wrote about it for No Film School. So you can check it out on No Film School. Blue is the Warmest Color is coming out on Netflix on August 26th. That is a favorite of John and I, and it's, I think, one of the best LGBT films ever made. I will say, though, that it is not a date movie. (laughs) (laughs) I saw it a couple ex-boyfriends ago with my... (laughs) (laughs) Is that how you chronicle your life? (laughs) Yes. That's exactly how I chronicle my life. Um, with somebody that I was dating and the basically the takeaway from that movie is that nobody exits a relationship um, without one person's heart being completely broken and it is very, very, very sad. Probably also not like a holiday movie with the parents. No, definitely not. Lots of sex. Yeah, but if you're with your bros and you need something to kick back and watch, you know? It is a brilliant movie. Yeah. Yes. It it was the Palme d'Or winner at Con a couple years ago. Side note, I saw Mulholland Drive in theaters with my mom, another film with a very infamous, very graphic lesbian sex scene, and yeah, I pretty much died on the spot. I saw Made in Manhattan with my grandma <laughs> and my entire family. Is, is Were you on the airplane? Made in Manhattan? <laughs> no, but it's. Ra- I think it's probably a little racy from what I can remember. Is that the J-Lo film? Yeah. Um, speaking about Made in Manhattan, Morse from America is coming out. <laughs> <laughs> is J-Lo in that? No, but Craig Robinson is, and that's coming out August 19th in theaters. It's uh, It was a Sundance favorite from this year that was picked up by A24, who will be distributing it, and it's written and directed by Chad Hartigan, and as I said, it stars Craig Robinson. It's the romantic and coming-of-age misadventures of a 13-year-old American living in Germany, and uh, it's supposed to be pretty good. 
something that I will definitely be trying to see next week is Werner Herzog's latest movie, Lo and Behold, Reveries of the Connected World. It comes out August 19th. It also premiered at Sundance earlier this year, and it's an exploration of the internet and the connected world, as the title would suggest. Does the internet dream <laughs> of itself? <laughs> I feel like we should do an entire episode in Herzog accents. I need to practice them. It's a hard one. I mean, the yeah, I think I, Emily needs to practice too. I think so too. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I mean, yeah. Emily will just sing hip hop hooks. Uh, I can do the the bears one. What? <laughs> not, not. I don't think like the accent itself that hard is that hard. It's like the his, his so, yeah, his rambling nature and what he goes into. You know the Does. ineffable. Whatever. Sean, that's good. It is good. Anyways. I saw the movie. (laughs) You saw it? Yes, I did. I got a screener, and um, it's one of the best in a while. It's very, very funny. And it kind of jumps all over the place from like a a place in um, in a remote part of America that has no internet connectivity whatsoever, where people who people go to seek refuge that feel like they have some sort of mental disorder from the National Radio Quiet Zone in West Virginia. I think that must be it. That must be it. <laughs> yeah, I've spent some time there. It's amazing. Oh yeah, the people are really yeah quite characters. Yeah, we actually have a post on the site about it too because Oakley, our writer Oakley Anderson Moore, attended a Q and A after its Sundance premiere. And she wrote an article with some of the takeaways. We've also had a whole ton of other Herzog posts lately because he's been doing a lot of press and sort of weird events like an AMA um, around the release of his masterclass and this film and others. One of my favorite things about the site for the past month has been the ads for Herzog's masterclass and how they're paired with like the headlines and like stories on our page. It's just really funny. It just looks like he's judging the site so hard. <laughs> um and also, last week, uh, we covered um, a little bit of fun news that ended up being kind of controversial. Um, I think anytime you put Herzog and Kanye together, uh, it's going to spark some controversy. Anytime, because that happens a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. I, it seemed like a joke, but uh, he actually um, reviews, or not reviews, but sort of dissects Kanye West's now infamous, uh, famous video. Um, and it makes sense now because he talks a lot about how like Kanye West is using the internet to his advantage and relating that to his latest documentary. Um, it seems like, you know, Herzog might know what he's talking about. He might. Maybe. I don't know. Also little known Werner Herzog fact. He lives next door to Joaquin Phoenix and once saved his life from a car accident. That is awesome. That is incredible. Those are two very weird people. I always knew Werner was a hero. He was always a hero to me. I've also liked learning from all this coverage that he loves cat videos. I'd like him to do the same kind of uh, dissection of internet cat videos as he's done on Kanye West's famous video. That would be a thing to see. That would definitely be a cool series for, you know, like some website to have. I don't know. Next week on No Film School. I would do it. The dancing chicken at the end of Strasek is really the beginning of internet cat videos. Wow, you heard it here first, folks. My mind is blown. And on that note, you can see not that post, but lots of Werner Herzog posts and everything else we've talked about on the show at the post associated with this podcast and in other recent posts on nofilmschool.com. And that's bringing us to the close of this week's show. So... Check out nofilmschool.com, subscribe to the No Film School podcast, and keep rating us on iTunes. We love your love. Um, you can find me and reach out on Twitter at Liz Film. I'm Jim John Jim. Jim 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 Jim. That's Jim underscore 
Yep. <laughs> exactly. Thunderscum. <laughs> That's really hard to say. <laughs> if you'd like to tweet at Jim, John, Jim, you'll have to use underscores in between those words. That's true. And there is not a single underscore in at El Booter, which is my twiddle, twi- twi- <laughs> which is my Twitter handle. Twiddle. How about I'm, you? I'm just Charles Hayne at Twiddle Twaddle. That's pretty good. <laughs> and we are all at No Film School. Thanks, guys. See you next week. My back is sweating. Okay. <laughs> 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 <laughs>